Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. Welcome to The Indispensables. Uh, our guest today is Deborah Pluchet-Moore. Uh, she's been a leader for decades in healthcare, academia, banking, uh, and in 2018, she founded a boutique consulting firm called the Pluchet-Moore Group. Uh, and uh, I am proud to say uh, that she has been my client uh, uh, at different points in the, in, in the past when she was in the CEO role. And um, it is my honor and privilege uh, to have her on the show. Uh, Deborah, welcome to The Indispensables. Bruce, it is a pleasure to be here and always having the, having the opportunity to connect with you is inspiring. Oh, well, likewise, likewise. So, uh, so you've been, uh, I mean, you, you have been CEO of these big healthcare uh, uh, organization. You've, you've been around the block a few times. Um, when, when sometimes uh, um, people say, well, how does somebody get to, 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 to be there? How does somebody get to the pinnacle uh, like that? So what, what's your story? How did, how did you get to where you are? So actually, I was the chief human resources officer for many years and then held two roles as chief of staff for a large uh, multi-facility, billions of dollar organization. Um, so I was really chief human resources officer and chief of staff. So you've, you've had the C-level, uh, uh, yes. but, but, but uh, well, golly, you carry yourself like a CEO and you advise CEOs, right? I do. I do. Uh, that has been core to my work. And my mission, uh, impact and influence can come from many different um, situations and positions. And so I always use the opportunity to impact influence. And I have 35 years in the C-suite. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, uh, when I first went to Ohio Health, for example, where you were CHRO there, right? Yes. And, and uh, that organization is just exactly how big? Uh, uh, about three billion, and uh, probably now because I've been gone for over ten years, probably I would say around twenty thousand teammates. Uh, my last organization was sixty thousand teammates and twelve billion. So yeah, and and uh, and and the role there was chief of staff and chief human resources officer. Yeah. So um. Uh, so so you know how I remember at Ohio Health when I first went there. Um, you were already a legend, and I don't know, how long were you at that organization? Uh, seven and a half years at Ohio Health, and uh, 10 years at Carolina Healthcare System, now Atrium. Uh, I was there for the name change. And when you're dealing with healthcare, you're usually dealing with multiple sites, uh, thousands of employees, uh, patient care extending to individuals, but also community care. Uh, usually healthcare organizations are at the core of cities and communities, trying to improve health and advance lives and engage in um, the well-being of entire communities. 
So there is scope, there is complexity, uh, there is size, and um, you know every person is engaged in taking care of a single patient. So there's no one person who could take care of every aspect of a patient's life. So um, there are joys in uh, the healthcare industry, there are concerns, and there's also those moments of loss. And it takes an entire healthcare community to uh, serve families and patients and communities. Well, if, if, if my memory serves correctly, so you're talking about the Carolinas uh, uh, where you were there during a, a name change uh, and also a substantial organizational transformation, right? Yeah. And, and, yeah. and my recollection is you led a, a transformation at Ohio Health also. And um, so, so, I mean, you don't just show up and transform a giant healthcare organization. How did you, how did you get there? What, what, what were the early stages of your career? So uh, my career ha uh, has been rewarding, challenging, uh, but also I have used every moment of being a late leader for development, for transformation, um, being the conscience of the organization, making sure that we are living to mission, and um, encouraging and inspiring people to find vitality in the mission. So how do I uh, describe myself as a change agent or a transformational leader? Um, you know, it's staying relevant, uh, knowing what's coming being able to forecast and predict and to create those parameters for change for um, many people to be able to adjust to the moment. So um, I have very high regard for all of our workforce dealing with COVID. It was one of those for the moment opportunities for all of us to adapt, to be flexible, to remain engaged and to deal with struggle, but also to find joy. So that was unpredictable. It was not planned for, but we had the ability within us to adjust. So I've grown that muscle over years. And um, so for me, it is about being able to take the complexity of a situation and translate the communication so everyone has access. So uh, if you're talking about the financial aspect of an organization, how does every single employee understand the position of the organization and their contribution to success? So how do you stand in the middle and constantly translate, plan for change, get people prepared for change so we can better serve. So that's kind of who I am. It's my DNA. So, but that's a pretty high level and high-minded way of talking about this. Like you're talking like a CEO. So anyone who's wondering like, okay, you know, <laughs> what, I mean, uh, uh, but how, how do you get the opportunity to lead at that level? Because what you're saying, I, I take it that muscle that you've developed over time, uh, that, that, that ability to get people to uh, find themselves in the change, uh, and, and uh, that, that that is one of your greatest strengths. 
Um, but, I mean, you weren't born with that. And I know some people are born natural leaders, but, but how, how did you sort of get yourself to that point uh, where you could lead transformations of organizations with tens of thousands of people? So to start off, I'm a baby boomer. So there was this inspiring point of time that our generation was going to make a difference and that work was going to be demanding, meaningful, and impactful. And um, as you progressed, your influence um, rose and so did your credibility. So that's one aspect. So I was prepared with education. I was prepared with a direction. And I had a mission of working for communities and for people. So it was always about an advocation and a vocation. You know, um, we're all committed to making this better. I also have had incredible chief executive officers that provided me access and opportunity and remarkable board members uh, that were the trustees of the organizations where I served. And um, they saw in me uh, an opportunity for me to lead and for the organization to be better as they were the stewards of the organization. So uh, I, one of my mentors just said to me, um, not very long after I had been at uh, Atrium Health, he said, I didn't give you anything but confidence to lead. So, um, you know, with a board member giving you that statement, you're saying, okay, he just created an access point. They'll tell me if I'm doing something wrong, but as long as I'm getting support, move forward, take the opportunity and uh, be impactful be inspiring, be influential, and do good work. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, just that. Only that stuff, right? Um, but that's like, you know, uh, uh, just be Wonder Woman, just be Superman, and you're all set. What, 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 how did you start out? Uh, what, what were your earliest career uh, uh, moves that, I mean, just for somebody who's like listening to this and thinking, okay, but I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to hit a home run on day one. Well, uh, to be absolutely honest with you, um, storytelling is a part of the success. As a translator, it was always about um, telling a story that people could connect to. So you asked me, how did I start out? Um, so I was kind of educated and prepared uh, to be a wife and to be a community service uh, leader, no matter where I was. I was going to serve. And uh, my five-year-old told uh, the principal at the school he was attending, uh, we were close to a military base. My husband's a retired colonel. Um, the kindergarten teacher was leaving. Her husband had been reassigned. And uh, my son went to the principal and said, you should hire my mom. She has a degree, and she's the best teacher in the whole wide world. So it started as a kindergarten teacher. Uh, I moved. Wait, 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 wait. I gotta stop. I mean, that is just awesome. Uh, so uh, for one thing, um, your candor uh, and uh, uh, your your ownership of, of that path 
uh, I want to commend because you know what? Uh, uh, raising children and, uh, and serving a family is, is something that is a profound work that too many people uh, write off. And my God, I mean, how much does one learn about leadership from, from having children, uh, but, but having a whole classroom of, of kindergartners? All right. So what's is there? I, I want to hear what you did next. But is there like a golden takeaway from kindergarten that has actually served you the rest of your entire career? It has served me my entire career. Um, you know, we all have the same basic needs. Uh, we want to learn. We want to be recognized. Uh, we want to engage and we want to do good work. So I think that is the vast percentage of the society. So there are outliers that may not be interested in, you know, being engaged, having community, doing good work, having a sense of belongingness and development. But I think they're outliers. So I think the majority of people want to achieve uh, in the work that they have embraced. So um, those learnings from kindergarten um, and being a, uh, as a kindergarten teacher were essential for me. Um, and I went from being uh, a kindergarten teacher to Head Start. I loved the whole um, involvement of the government and you know, providing young people and their families in challenging communities the opportunity to thrive through education, through understanding diet, respecting community. So I uh, loved those principles. Then I got recruited into higher education. I worked with City Colleges of Chicago, uh, University of Dayton, loved the academic community, uh, the lifelong learner aspect. They promoted me into senior roles and uh, that kindergarten teacher was always building community, was always being a teacher, facilitator, a consultant, uh, a trusted colleague, something you learn as a kindergarten teacher. So that was always there. Uh, from higher education, I got recruited into healthcare and then kept getting recruited to bigger jobs with size, scope, and complexity. And every time there was a greater amount of opportunity and impact to improve the workplace, to improve the workforce, to develop people in the communities where they live and thrive. So for me, it's a mission. It's not only about doing the work that you get paid for. It is about doing the work that builds communities. One of the last things I did before I left Charlotte, North Carolina, is I co-chaired the bond initiative for our schools, uh, my first and last step into politics. But that was my way of saying thank you to the Charlotte community before I left. It was their biggest bond initiative ever, um, but it put me in different circles to uh, get that uh, initiative passed. So and it's it's finding so your personal scope. Yeah, it's 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 um so so uh, I'm still uh, stuck on kindergarten here. I'm just I'm just picturing you because you know every time I've ever seen you, you're you're like the biggest big shot in the room, surrounded by a bunch of executives. So I'm trying to picture you surrounded by a bunch of five year olds, uh, and uh, 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 and uh, but 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 uh, and and now you're you're still so you're now doing this consulting. 
Um, I mean, what's it like to be on the other side of the equation? I love it because I am controlling the size and scope. I'm working in my own name and I'm supporting the next generation of executives as an advisor. So I'm taking all of the aspects of my career where I've learned and thrived, uh, playing it forward to that next generation, helping to uh, facilitate their success. So I've had my pitfalls, you know, and I've taken every pitfall to heart and I've tried to um, find resolution to my, my biggest errors uh, the majority of the time I did. And it's the hows. How do you help people understand uh, how to thrive in success, how to get to success, how to forecast, how to predict, how to lead people in a way that is inspiring and motivational, but also how to learn from your challenges, your errors, your mistakes, and turn them into an opportunity. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean look, and that's good advice for a five-year-old. It's also good advice for a CEO, right? Exactly. And so uh, sometimes I get caught and people will say, Deborah, do not talk to me like a kindergarten teacher. And uh, I think in my, I just smile, but I think in my head, if you weren't acting like a kindergartner, I wouldn't be talking to you like a kindergarten teacher. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Well, 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 that answers a lot of questions for me with the, the way a lot of people talk to me. But uh, <laughs> it is that slow, precise uh, method of delivering the message and the tone. They know. <laughs> yeah, but but I think you know. Look, whatever it is you do, you, I think you're gifted at communicating with people and at conveying a sense of connection and caring. And, um, but, but also your own true North, right? Like, like, uh, you know, you, you, you have a, uh, you have that, um, what I would describe as that presence, right? So what, so how, is that conscious? I mean, did you have that when you were five or how do you show up with that presence? Um, I think it is, uh, being a woman and a woman of color with always wanting to, um, have, a sense of responsibility to work. And um, you can't do the job alone. So how do you build teams? How do you inspire people? How do you take thousands and pe thousands of people from A to B and make sure that they are prepared for B and that they can perform at their highest level? So my gift that I give to others is the confidence, is that they are prepared, is that we can serve at a higher level. And, um, you know, being generous with uh, appreciation and recognizing contributions is very important to forming those teams that um, exceed expectations. So meets expectations is about as low as I go. I want to exceed expectations and I want the people around me to exceed expectations. I had a fabulous colleague and, um, you, know, it, you know, coming in, I always had to prove my level of competency, my level of being informed and engaged. And he said to me upon his retirement, he says, Deborah makes you better. And that was probably the 
most generous, thoughtful compliment I could have ever received. Yeah, that's uh, wow. Deborah makes you better. What I mean, what 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 could a leader want to hear? Uh, and and you said, and I I take it you borrowed this from from a prior uh, mentor uh, that that uh, what the gift you try to give people or a gift you try to give people is confidence in them, knowing you are confident in them and giving them that confidence. Yes, exactly right. So tell me about uh, you also. I know you're, uh, you've served on a lot of boards of directors. And, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes I wonder, how come I'm not on more boards of directors? So how, how does that happen? What, 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 what skill set do you have to bring to a governing board? Of, I mean, an institution like, like the University of Dayton. How many students are at the University of Dayton? Around 10,000. Right, or Golden Gate University. How many students are there? Around 3,500. And I mean the Charlotte Chamber of Commerce, Fifth Third Bank of North Carolina. Like you've been on a lot of boards. What, what, what is the skill set you bring to a governing board? It is, um, so for me, it is about building, appreciating, and respecting the communities where I work and thrive. So um, it is not only doing the work, it is also understanding the needs, the special needs of communities. And I think board members bring in a, a broad level of expertise. Uh, and it may be expertise in a particular discipline, knowledge of the region, knowledge of um, you know, how the community interacts with that particular organization. So the University of Dayton, as an example, uh, my father-in-law uh, enrolled there in 1956. I worked, he got his degree. I worked there. I got my master's there. My children went there. So our family has over a 70-year history with the University of Dayton. So when you have those kinds of histories, um, together it creates uh, a compelling passion for other people to experience the university as we did. So I always say that's where I grew up as a professional. You know, uh, the president saw something in me and he taught me finance, he taught me planning, uh, he taught me sales, um, you know, marketing. I was in every one of those conversations. And, and I kind of got my HR footing there I was on every important search. So I learned how to recruit, I learned how to sell, I learned, and, um, and then it got to a level of competency. They had taught me, I had learned, and I think, Bruce, it's really important to know when you have reached your top level of competency and when it is time for a bigger platform uh, for you, but also for the organization you're leaving to get in new, fresh talent and new ideas. So um, I think when you are at the C-suite level, those roles have shelf lives. And uh, there's nothing personal about it, but it's knowing when you have contributed at your highest level, and you may be the person to take it on to the next level, you may not be. So, 
but just to drill down, so so just thinking here, okay, so you've, you've been a kindergarten teacher, you've been an HR executive, you've been uh, a chief of staff for in the C-level uh, and, and spent, I mean, decades in, in the C-suite. So you know how to operate in a, I, I always say a zillion dollar company, but in your case, it's actually billion, multi-billion dollar companies. Um, and then you're, you, and then on boards of directors, right? So, uh, and now here you are advising CEOs uh, as, as a consultant. Now that advising CEOs as a consultant. Now that's something I know a thing or two about, right? Um, uh, the other stuff, I've never done any of that other stuff. Um, uh, I mean, I've been on a few boards, but not like you. Um, so, so, but, but, but parse that. We've talked about the, the kindergarten teacher, but what is the difference between governing CEOs uh, on a board, uh, advising CEOs when they're the ones paying you, um, and, and, um, and, and facilitating working for CEOs when you're in the C-suite, like all of those, you're dealing with C-level executives in each of those capacities, right? Yes. Yes. So you mentioned before true North. So it is important that you know who you are, that you understand the depth and breadth of your influence that you're generous with your time and your expertise. And I really do serve as an advisor in all of those roles. So, um, you know, looking to give CEOs feedback on how to achieve their goals in the most relevant, effective, efficient, and compassionate way. So, you know, how do you build a relationship that uh, you are of influence to the most senior people? And how do you keep your kind of um, credibility and integrity as you are an advisor? So you're constantly putting yourself in check. And uh, one of the things I try to do is be very careful with the resources that have been extended to me. Um, so to, to say a little bit more about that, what do you mean uh, careful with the resources? I mean, I understand what you mean if what you mean is like, hey, you've got somebody's time. And if it's, you know, you're in the C-suite and you're the chief of staff and you're trying to get something figured out with the CEO, uh, you, you, right? Or, or if, um, uh, if you're uh, uh, advising a CEO and you've got their time, uh, and they're paying you good money, so you want to make good use of that time. Uh, if you're in a board, of course, uh, you know, I guess the time constraints there uh, play out a little differently because you're all s sitting around in a meeting and uh, everyone wants to do the job but also get out the door. Um, but is, is that the principal resource that you try to take care of, other people's time? Other people's time, how I use it, how I take advantage of it, um, how I do not overuse it. Um, that I am very thoughtful and prepared every time I extend into the resource of time. So if I'm talking, I realize somebody else isn't talking. So if it's been said, I don't say it. I also am very clear to understand, is it public or private? So what are the rules there? And uh, leaving people dignity 
as you know, you are giving them advice, giving them enough room and space and time to develop. That is, uh, that's like a, a, a quick uh, cheat sheet for how to conduct oneself properly in a high level meeting, right? Right. Uh, although, you know, my observation is that a lot of people in meetings, they, they, they turn that advice almost inside out. Like if someone else said it, they want to make sure to let people know, hey, I thought that too. <laughs> uh, or in case you didn't notice, maybe you'd think that was my idea. Uh, that's probably the, the, the most egregious thing. That and then just sort of uh, uh, wasting time in, in, in those collective rooms where, you know, I always think, man, if there's 10 people or 15 people sitting around at a meeting, that's a lot of time being expended. So I, 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 I and, but I love, I think, I think the, the one I love the most is uh, giving people dignity or, or helping to take care of their dignity uh, in a group setting, remembering what's private and what's public. Uh, those are great ground rules for conducting yourself in a meeting. But I take it you would do that in any meeting. I would, I would do that in any meeting. And uh, always in the back of my mind, if I have the microphone for three minutes and they say, Deborah, it's three minutes. I think to myself, how will I use this time wisely? Uh, how will I use this time wisely? I mean, if only people, 180 seconds, if only people all were doing that, I, I, I've got a challenge for you. You've done this, right? So I want to ask you, uh, how do you take meetings and, and push a philosophy like yours and a set of good habits like yours um, and, and, get, and, and socialize them, get, get them uh, practiced across the board. One of the questions I'm asked by business leaders all the time is, you know, what are we going to do about this meeting thing? You know, some people are terrible at hosting meetings. Some people are terrible at attending meetings. Everyone's got so many meetings. Uh, what's a good strategy for you know, creating what I call meeting discipline throughout the ranks. So it's exactly right, Bruce. It is about discipline and how you manage yourself and your profile as an executive and how you role model. So even if you go into a meeting of disarray, if you role model your personal standards for who you are as a leader, and an executive, it will start pulling traction. So it is about being true to yourself, how you conduct yourself in meetings, and respecting that not all meetings are the same. You know, operational, strategic, social, they're not all the same. And how do you adapt uh, to be most effective in all of those settings? Um, so, so uh, situational leadership applied to meetings. Um, and 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 how do you go in when you go in to advise a CEO? I mean, again, you've you've got so much experience working with C level executives. Maybe it's a little easier for you. You don't feel. I mean, when I go in to meet with a CEO, I always feel kind of like, you know, golly, what am I doing here? Almost, you know. And even though I, I I've advised so many C level executives. Um, but I'm always a little bit um, like I feel a little on the spot, right? Like, boy, I better start adding value right away. Um, and 
But how do you go in and size up the situation when you're dealing with sea level folks? So I have watched you and uh, you come in with energy and intellect and you capture people's um, enthusiasm and engagement immediately. And that works for you, but it may not work for everyone. So being a woman and a woman of color, one of the things I do initially is read the room. And it may take me two or three settings to understand where the power is shaped, understand how decisions get made, understand who are the influencers. And I have three sets. There is the pre-meeting, get prepared, socially and on topic. Then there's the meeting. And then there's the most important aspect after the meeting. What will you do to influence and impact after the meeting? So you're always on. And uh, so I look at executive roles and I say high risk, high reward, and you, you are going to engage with time. So those are the rules. So, so those are the rules. You, you, do you have rules for everything? Uh, pretty much. <laughs> I, I would say it was my Catholic school upbringing. There you go. And uh, uh, right. for uh, Do you know that I visited the University of Dayton uh, uh, many times before I, I realized, wait a minute, this is actually a Catholic university. <laughs> so it took me a while to figure that one out. Um, yes. so, so those are your rules of engagement. Okay. What, what, what's your rule if you're trying to give a C-level executive difficult advice and, they're, and they're, they don't want to hear it? So you've built trust. So, uh, and, and people know if I'm coming to them, um, I am coming with goodwill. I've built my trust and I'm a collegial um, member of the team trying to advance the whole team. So I have never put my career aspirations in front of anyone. So my promotions, I've never asked for them. They have been extended. I always say yes, uh, but you know, it is being a trusted colleague. Uh, you always say yes. Say a little bit more about that because you don't always say yes, right? You must be pretty good at when to say no. Maybe you don't say no to a great promotion, but uh, you don't say, but wait, wait, wait. You, now, uh, people can't see uh, because this is only audio, but I can see you just, you just sort of shrugged like, I don't know if I ever say no. Do, what is your philosophy about yes and no? Uh, yes to promotion, to opportunity. So if someone has thought about me and there is any opportunity for me to get this done, I say yes. And I tell women all the time, just say yes. Now, you know, about serving on too many boards or um, having engagements, I can't extend at the highest level. I will say no, but I will also recommend someone else. Um, and, and so that's one of the things about being, not just being a go-to person, but having go-to people in, in your network and having a, a network of go-to people so that if you're not the right person for the opportunity, uh, you can do everyone a favor in that equation, right? Because when, when you say, oh, I can send you to someone else, 
you're not just passing uh, this opportunity off. You're doing a favor for both parties in that case. Exactly. And um, I believe that I am creating a better scenario. I wouldn't have been able to give it the intellect and time it needed, but I know someone who can fulfill your need at the highest level. Okay. So you have rules for everything. What are the rules you give people who are just starting out their working lives and careers? To become a master at your work, to be a good, so for me, I've been married for 48 years. So my husband and my family come first as often as I can. I can't say always. It was as often as I could. And when I couldn't, I created alternative plans and, you know, tried to get as much done as I could. So people always say, can you have it all? And my answer to that is yes, you can have it all. But you can't have it all at the same amount at the same time. You have to be able to adjust and pull strings and still feel good about what you are accomplishing. So, you know, I kind of always looked at it and said, you know, where am I today? And then every night I looked in the mirror and I wanted to say to myself, well done. And, uh, and, and so, so you have your priorities straight, right? Uh, you know what your order of priorities is. And, uh, and, and that's a big part of it. But you also, uh, your advice is become a master at whatever you do. Uh, I like it. Uh, okay, so what's your advice to somebody who's gotten pretty far along, but they haven't been able to crack the code to get into that C-suite? So, I always look at the full situation. Who's the individual? What is the business? What's the intent of the company? Is there alignment? So, uh, many times people think that, you know, they've been overlooked. And I try to explain to everyone, you're not overlooked, but how do you stand out? And uh, standing out is being a master of your work, uh, being able to work in, with relationships in and outside of work, being able to be known as a leader and as a person who extends service to community. So what is your profile? You know, how do you kind of create those profile steps of what is meaningful to every individual. And it's an individual plan. So my plan was always about family. It was about community. It was about work. And um, it was about service. Service, yeah. And that's evident in uh, all over your, your career. Uh, uh, you serve one board after another. And, um, and, and your service has been recognized with, with a lot of prestigious accolades. Um, all right, I have one more question for you as our time uh, uh, grows short. Um, you seem to be a fan of the cat in the hat. Uh, 
What, what is it about the cat in the hat that you find so intriguing? So um, we started with where my career began. And uh, we always laugh about herding cats, but herding kindergarten students, herding college students, herding the workforce, herding the C-suite, you know, I have seen myself in that position to be the voice of reason, um, to be the conscience of an organization, to push organizations forward, to understand um, the uh, challenges of an organization, but also to cope with its future and its future successes. So um, I'm a herder, a corraller, a community builder, a builder of people. Deborah Pluchet Moore, herder of cats, and through the Pluchet Moore group, advisor to C-level executives, and um, someone I am so proud to know and have been so honored and pleased to work with. Uh, Deborah Pluchet Moore, thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you. And thank you for calling out indispensable people. Sometimes they don't get the recognition that they deserve. And you have created this platform that everyone can be touched, recognized, and have influence. So thank you for that, Bruce. Oh, fantastic. You are an amazing human being. And uh, I love it. Now, I knew the cat in the hat had meaning. I knew it. Did you know it? <laughs> I could see it. I could feel it. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.